You're listening to Torah Classes with Rabbi Mendy Goldberg. This class is a recording from a live class. Are we going to be doing reading? No. Oh, okay. my glasses then. Okay, so good afternoon, and today we're going to be discussing, first of all, this week's Torah reading, as it tells us, and how it correlates and relates to the time that we're in in preparation for the High Holy Days of Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. So, many times you ask this person, you know, who's been married for 50, 60 years, and they ask this guy, what's your ingredient? What's the special recipe to be able to stay married so long? And the guy answers and says, every single day I got married again. What does this mean? When we look at life and things around us, one challenge, another challenge, many different things always start coming up. How do we keep the excitement? How do you keep the momentum in life? And as we know, because if you have that momentum and you have the excitement, then the relationship continues to blossom and to grow. And therefore, when a person is, realizes and recognizes and appreciates the wonder of that day and the beauty of the relationship, and they're still excited, so therefore the relationship doesn't go stale. As much as that is in the relationship between two humans, how much more so with our relationship with God? And creating a relationship where there's a momentum, excitement, and always recognizing that we have the relationship with the Almighty helps us overcome the different obstacles and challenges that come our way throughout the day-to-day life grind and challenges that come up. There's a story told, just happened about a few weeks ago, a fellow in Israel was saying the following story that he heard from firsthand from the person that it happened to, there was this individual who was studying in the yeshiva, and every single year in honor of Rosh Hashanah, he used to take upon himself an extra resolution or commitment of how he can get, you know, to help get closer to God, feel the energy of Rosh Hashanah and the high holidays. And this year, in the summer months, right before the summer, he took upon himself the resolution that any time before he prays, He's going to wash his hands. Even though according to Jewish law, you just have to make sure your hands are clean. But he wanted to take an extra stringency amongst, on himself, which was that he should wash his hands properly with a vessel before he prays. And that was the resolution that he took upon himself. And so he did it for one time, another time. And it so happened to be that he was going, he went on a vacation, they went to the beach or whatever it may be. And he was walking along while the people were sitting at the beach. He went jogging. And he hears in the distance somebody making announcement, Mincha, Mincha, who wants to come pray Mincha? So he says, what an opportunity, I'm right here, I don't have to worry about going back to synagogue later, I'll pray right here. But then he remembered that I made a resolution that I'm always going to wash my hands to make sure that, you know, before I pray, where is he going to wash his hands? So he says, you know what, what if one time I don't keep it? It's not so bad. I'll keep it every other time. But he says, no, but I made a resolution. I'm going to keep it. So he finds a disposable cup, runs down to the ocean to be able to go wash his hands to Dava Mincha. As he comes to the ocean, 
he sees a hand struggling in the water. He was an EMT. He was quickly jumped in, pulled the person out. There was a little kid drowning in the water, pumped out her water and saved, this, saved the girl's life. The resolution that he made to get closer to God, to make himself a better vessel to create a relationship with God, not only brought his physical life closer to God, but also saved somebody else's life. When we have a renewed energy, when we renew our dedication to something, it's not only that we experience a greater uplifting, not only do we become better because of it, but it changes our entire surroundings and we can affect the people around us because of it as well. And therefore, when we look in today's, what we're going to discuss today, is to understand and to recognize the beauty of renewing and bringing new energy into everything in our life and versus the routine and getting used to something and how things ultimately become stale when we just keep on doing them again and again out of rote. And in order to truly intensify and to truly appreciate any relationship, whether it's a relationship between man and his fellow or a relationship between man and God, there has to be this constant renewal within the individual in order to appreciate that relationship and to get that relationship on steroids and keep it going the way it should be. And where will we see this? By analyzing this week's Torah reading, the first verse in this week's Torah reading, looking at it not only from the simple interpretation, but also going a bit deeper as we usually do, prying beneath the surface and seeing the esoteric and seeing the mystical teachings behind it gives us a better understanding and a greater appreciation for the words of the verse, but even more so finding a contemporary application into our daily practice and our daily service to God. And what does the Torah begin with? This week's Torah reading begins with a seemingly obscure law. A law which nobody would say it maybe applies today. But as we will see as we continue to discover, this law not only is applicable, but it's something which is part of our daily practice. The law begins as follows. The law begins concerning a woman who is found during wartime. What does this mean? The Torah tells us as follows. When you will go out to war on your enemies, and God will give your enemies in your hand, and you will see in the captivity, a woman who is beautiful, you'll have a desire for her, and you'll want to take her for a wife. So the Torah gives us instructions. You have to bring into your house. You have to cut her for here. You have to cut her nails. You have to take her for a beautiful dress. And she has to sit in your house for a month's time, crying for her father or mother. If after the month's time, you still are desired by her, you still like her, then you are able to marry her and bring her into your family. What is the Torah telling us? What is this war? Well, well, let's first understand the simple interpretation and then we'll move on to the esoteric. The simple interpretation is as follows. The Jewish warriors would go out to war. One of the tactics of the enemy was to seduce the Jewish warriors by putting out their, their beautiful women. Not only would they put out their beautiful women, but they would make them get dressed in a very provocative way so that the Jewish people, the warriors, should be distracted at war. God understands the evil inclination. And God knows the evil inclination, as we're soon going to see, and therefore the Torah permits taking these captives in. Now, these captives 
were taken in, men and women were taken captive, prisoners of war. The prisoners of war were the women, the men that were taken, that were used as slaves, and the women that were taken as captives of war as well. Now these captives of war, these women, we're talking about over here a woman, who she puts herself out there. Nobody is forcing her, nobody's forcing a relationship on this woman. She is going there, making herself provocative, considering herself to she should be taken by these soldiers, of course, to distract them, to seduce them, and hopefully to avoid them from fighting the enemy. Where do we know this from? Because the Torah says, and you will take off her dress of captivity. Which woman goes to war in captivity? Which captive woman wears a fancy dress? It is because these women have put on these specific types of clothing to be able to be provocative and to seduce and to be able to attract these men. Now the warriors take these women, but the Torah says, you cannot just force yourself on these women. They have to be willingly wanting to be able to come to you. However, the Torah says something very carefully. And he says, we understand, and the words that Rashi puts it, the Torah talks to the impulse of the evil inclination. The evil inclination, when is it attracted to a woman, has two ways of doing about, going about it. Either to do it in a forbidden way, or to do it in a permissible way. So instead of the Torah making it completely forbidden, and thereby causing a person to do something forbidden, the Torah says, you know what, you're excited, you're in war, you're passionate, you're, no, all you see is maybe miserable people around you, and all of a sudden you see this attracted woman, and your evil inclination is making you tempted. So you know what, bring the woman in. Bring her into your house for a month's time. But remove that provocative clothing, remove that everything that you were attracted to. Recognize that you were attracted to this woman only because of her externalities, or is it also because she has a virtue that you're attracted to? Wait a month's time that your evil inclination now is tempered, has calmed down. You're no longer at war. You're no longer tempted by the situations around you. And after that month's time, you're still attracted to this woman. That means you're not only attracted to externalities, but you see a virtue within the woman for who she is. Then the Torah says you can marry her. And if you don't want her at that time, you have to send her back to her home and you cannot have anything to do with her. So what the Torah is giving you basically is a cooling down time and giving you an opportunity to, so to speak, allow your evil inclination to act on its impulse, but with measure. Allow yourself to express that yes, you want the woman, but recognize one second, why am I taking that woman? Is it because I truly desire her or am I just being tempted? And teaching us how not to always act in our temptations, even if our evil inclination, and even if our inclination tells us that we want it, but to be able to be able to create barriers or limitations. So allowing us to, so to speak, act on it, but also allowing us to control the situation as well. So what we see from over here is that we see this individual, this woman who comes into the home, she removes the provocative wear that she was wearing, she now becomes a woman of captivity. For a month she cries for her mother and father. What is this month that she's crying for the mother and father? Maimonides says something very interesting. Every human being needs time to cry. The same way the human being rejoices at happy occasions and laughs and is excited and dances, so too at sad occasions, the human being also needs time to cry. That's why Judaism sets time of Shiva, which is mourning, time of 30 days of mourning. Because when we go through a dramatic moment, we need to cry, we need to get it out of our system. This woman 
who was just captive. She was taken away from her parents, whether by choice or by force, regardless, but she decided to go out into where all the soldiers are. Now you have the opportunity that you're bringing her into your home. The first thing is, out of pure decency and menschlichkeit, the Torah says, allow her to cry for her parents. Allow her to think about her past. Give her 30 days to get over what she had. That's step number one. Number two, after she's there for the month, for the month's time, then you can think about engaging with her and marrying her and bringing her into your honam. Now here's something interesting, unique. Looking at the words of the Torah. The Torah uses the terminology and she cries Yerach Yomim, a month time, for a month. Now the word for month in Hebrew or in English or in any language, where does the word month come from? Month comes from the word moon. Chodesh, as we're soon going to see, or monat in Yiddish comes from the word moon as well. So all of this is because the moon circles for about 30 days, or to be exact, 29 and a half days, and every single month we see a new moon, it waxes and weans until we see a new moon again. So every single time that it's called a new month, it's because there's a new moon. In the Torah we find two terminologies for the word month. Yerach, which literally means moon, and Chodesh, which means month as well. The word Chodesh comes from the word new, that it's always a new moon, a new month, a new cycle. So therefore the Torah would use the terminology, Chodesh, it's a new month. So for example, we have Rosh Chodesh, the beginning of a new month. And in fact, if you find in the Torah probably more than 60 times that it uses the terminology for month, we'll use the terminology Chodesh. As you find in the book of Numbers, when it talks about the sacrifices, what day the holidays are, and we'll say in the seventh month, Bachodesh Ashvi, the third month, Bachodesh Ashlishi, Rosh Chodesh, Bachodesh, you'll always find in that terminology Chodesh utilizing for the name of month. Not only that, we even find this when it talks about when the Jewish people are told about they are going to eat, uh, that God is going to give them the quail, that they were complaining about the menu, they didn't like the manna. So God says, you're not only going to eat it one day, not only two days, not only three days, but you'll eat it a month's time, and it uses the terminology chodesh. Very rarely do we find a terminology called yerach, which means moon, because it makes more sense to use the terminology Chodesh, which means the new month. For example, uh, we find this as well when Jonathan and the story of Jonathan and David, when Jonathan was telling David that his father, King Saul, was upset at him, and therefore he comes to the meal, and King Saul asks his son Jonathan, where is your friend David? And he says, well, what's going on? Why didn't he come together and for the new month have a sacrifice and celebrate with us? Again, he uses that terminology for the new month. He is not here for the Chodesh. And this is because every new month, the Levana, the moon, comes new again. Why then, in today's Torah reading, when it talks about the woman who sits and cries for her father and mother, the Torah uses a terminology, not the usual terminology, Chodesh, but uses a terminology, Yerach, which means moon. Why doesn't it use the terminology, the renewal? Instead, it uses a terminology, which means a moon. But there's one other place that the Torah uses the same terminology of Yerach, of moon. And that is when Moses was born. When Moses was born in the book of Exodus, it says that the woman became pregnant and she gave birth. 
And she gave birth to a child three months earlier than the time. And for three months, she had to hide the child from the Egyptians. And after three months, what did she do with the child? She made a little basket and put him on the Nile River. If you recall the story of Moses when he was born. Over there, the Torah tells us that she hid the child for Shlosha Yirachim. Three months, but using not Shlosha Chadashim. Three months is the word Chodesh, but using the terminology Yarach. And the question over there again is, why does the Torah change the terminology from using Yerach instead of Chodesh? The Talmud answers this question in that scenario and says that the reason is because over there the Torah wants to tell us something specific. That why three months was he hidden? Because really Moshe was supposed to be born three months later. He was born a preemie so that the Egyptians shouldn't know about him, so that his mother should be able to hide him. What was three months after Moshe was born? If you take the calculation, three months was the day of Shavuos, the day when Moshe got the Torah at Mount Sinai. And they explain as follows, that if you take the month of the moon, which is 29 and a half days, and therefore the Torah alludes specifically to the moon, which is 29 days, 29 days, plus 30 days, two, two months of 29 and two months of 30, this gives, us, uh, this gives us a calculation of 58 days. 58 days tells us from the time that Moshe was actually born on the 7th of Adar, 58 days later is the 6th of Sivan, the day that the Torah was given. Telling us that really when was Moshe meant to be born, the same day that he was supposed to get the Torah, many years, 80 years later, on Mount Sinai. But what is the Torah telling us? Why does it use the terminology Yerach, the terminology of the moon, is to stress the very fact that when was this, this drama that happened on the 6th of Sivan, when he was put in the Nile River, many years later was going to happen again. So it wants to teach us a specific teaching concerning this word, and therefore it uses this terminology, the 88 days that happens on the 6th of Sivan. So what we see over here is that the Torah over here is telling us that the concept where God sees, so to speak, the future of this individual, where while his mother was concerned about putting him on the Nile River, God saw this as the time for him being the leader of the Jewish people, bringing the Torah down to Mount Sinai, giving the Jewish people, connecting, fusing heaven and earth, making that ultimate fusion of giving the greatest gift of the Jewish people, the Torah. And that's why it uses the terminology Yerech, moon, as opposed to month, new. That's the simple interpretation that we find in other places. However, there is another interpretation which is brought in a book called Mikhtav Lechizkiyo, a letter to Chizkiyo from a great scholar by the name of Chacham Chizkiyo Peretz, was written about 250 years ago from a great rabbi in Jarba, Tunisia. And this uh, explanation elucified and continued to be explained with the esoteric and Hasidic explanation gives us so much more content to what we're talking about when we understand just the particulars and the words of the Torah, where every single word has a monumental lesson in our every single day in life. And here's what he explains. And he says as follows. He says, if we look at the Torah reading of Kiseitze, it's telling us something deeper. Something which is not only referring to a time when the Jewish people went out to war, but something to every single one of us, especially at this time of the year. The Torah reading of Kiseitze is always read before Rosh Hashanah, during the time of the month of Elul. 
the month of introspection, the month of recollection, the month that we prepare for the high holy days. And over here the Torah is telling us, When you go out to war, who are you going out to war against? Not a war maybe back of 2,000 years ago, but every single day when we wake up in the morning, we are at war. We are at war, our enemy, which is the evil inclination which tries to persuade us. And the evil inclination tries to seduce us, and the evil inclination tries to be provocative, and the evil inclination tries to dress up in many different ways to be able to convince us and try to persuade us to do something wrong. And what happens over here? What does the Torah tell us? What do you need to do to be able to recognize evil for what it is? Remove the dress, the cloak that evil may embrace itself in. Remove the facade that's trying to persuade you and seduce you to make you do something wrong. Realize and recognize the evil inclination for what it is. Shave its head, remove its clothes, and you will see what evil is at its core. The only reason why we're tempted by negativity or by materialism or by things which are opposing our growth is because they take on this image, this facade. They're very provocative and persuasive. They try to seduce us. But when you undress it and you see really what it is, for what it's worth, there's nothing to it. And therefore over here, it explains to us and says as follows. When you go out to war, and you recognize and you see that you're in captivity, that the evil inclination is trying to capture you, remove it, undress it, recognize it for what it is, and identify what it is really, truly trying to do to you. How it's trying to play with you, how it's trying to mess you up, how it's trying to overcome you and not allow you to wage war, not allow you to stay on course in your mission of what you're ultimately supposed to do. It's trying to distract you with many different things out there. And we'll find 110 excuses and legitimate ones, seemingly. But when you enclose it, when you undress it, and you see what is it really doing, is it really the value? And eventually, after a month's time, during the month of Elul, which is a month, you come to Rosh Hashanah, and you see God in His purest glory. Then you're able to see that I'm even able to take the evil inclination and to transform it into something holy. But then why does he use the terminology? Yerach. What does this have to do with the month of Elul? Why does it say Yerach Yomim? Not Chodesh Yomim, not a, new, not a month of newing, but Yerach. And here is something very fascinating. These two words are not just two words that are interchangeable. You know, in English, there are many words that you can use for multiple different types of things. One word can have many different adjectives, or one word can have many different synonyms or pronouns, whatever may be to it. In Hebrew also, you have one word can mean multiple things, or you can have one item and use different words. For example, cemeteries called Beis HaKveros, Beis and Beis HaOlam, and so on. You can have many different words for to say one thing. But that's not what it's saying here. In fact, these two words symbolize two different opposite ideas of how we approach anything. And where do we see this? We see this very clearly when it comes to the concept of marriage. And when we write, and when a person gets married, they write a contract. The first prenup that was made 2,000 years ago by the great rabbis is called the ketubah. And that ketubah states the responsibilities that the husband has to the wife and the wife has to the husband in marriage. 
And as like every document, there's a date when the document is written and how it's written. And in the Ketubah, you write, and so-and-so date of the week, and so-and-so day of the month. When you write the day of the month, you write, La Chodesh, like for example, the Chodesh Elul, in the month of Elul. And you would use the terminology Chodesh. And you'd write in what city, in what state, and wherever you are, you're writing this document. But the terminology that's used in a ketubah, in a marital document, you use, you say Chodesh, in that day of the month. In contrast to the opposite side of the spectrum, when a person, God forbid, he has to get divorced, they also have to write a document. Halachically a document, and until a woman doesn't get that document, she's not halachically divorced. Or according to the Torah divorce, which is a get. A get is a document that separates the man and the woman. And in that document, it states, it uses a terminology, you write the word, in so-and-so day, le-yerach poloni, to this specific yerach, not chodesh, yerach. What we see from over here is something very interesting. When a person gets married, we're using the terminology chodesh, which means new. When a person gets divorced, when there's a breakup in the relationship, we use the word yerach. Why is that? And they say as follows. And it's based on a biblical verse. In this week's Torah reading, it tells us the laws about marriage. And it says that when you will take a woman, and what's the terminology that the Torah uses? When you will take a new woman, chadasha, which comes from the same word as chodesh. So therefore, what's the terminology we're going to be using in the ketubah? Will be the word chodesh, which means month, but also which means new for the new woman that you're taking. In contrast, when it comes to the concept of divorce, we know that it says when the, when the, when the blessings that are given by Moses to the tribe of Joseph, where we talk about in the, in the book of, at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, it uses the terminology, umimeged geresh irachim, and from the sunlight that will grow the crop by the moon. The word geresh, which is the source root of the word divorce, separation, how the crop separates, is, has to do with the word yerach. So therefore, in a divorce document, we use the terminology yerach. With this, the commentaries explain the following. Fascinating thing. Rabbi Chizkiyahu, the rabbi of 250 years ago, writes the following, and it says, The Torah tells us, when you take this woman, and why are you taking the woman? Because you're seduced by her. You're d- distracted by her. She's provocative. You're only looking at her external values. What happens? She's going to come, and she's going to cry for one day, for another day, but for Yerach Yamin. For a month long of days. But what does Yerach mean? The Torah is telling us that ultimately, such a type of relationship debacles, breaks, destroys. Why? Yerach. Because why are you marrying this woman? Why are you bringing this woman to your house? Not because you recognize her values. Not because you see what she is for her true core. Because you're distracted by your externalities. You are seduced in war. Do you think such a relationship is going to last? So therefore the Torah uses the terminology Yerach. Because this is not a renewed type of relationship. This is going to get old and stale. 
Just wait. She's going to take off her beautiful clothing. She'll shave. You won't hear anything. That's it. You won't be attracted to her anymore. You won't have any interest in her anymore. This is not a relationship that's going to continue to renew and be exciting. This is a relationship that's going to fall apart and be a debacle. As the commentaries say, why is the next law right away about the rebellious child? Because such a type of relationship only brings about a rebellious child. This is not a relationship which is, has a foundation. This is not a relationship that can grow. This is not a relationship that can, fly, that can, uh, can, that can um, be embellished and have some type of future to it. And therefore, when you go a step further, look back also the other time where we mentioned in the book of Exodus that it uses the terminology, and she hid Moses for three months. And what does the Torah use the terminology, Yerach? Because what happens after the three months? She has to take the child and put him in the Nile River. She doesn't know what's going to happen to the child. Maybe the child won't survive. It's going to be a separation. So anytime there's a separation, there's a departure. Anytime there's a sadness, anytime there's something which we need to have a breakup, the Torah uses the terminology Yerach, which symbolizes not renewal, but fracture. Stale, old, debacle. What is this telling us? Over here, the Torah is telling us the source, the root cause of how we have the ability to continue and have within ourselves the energy and how we can have that continuity within the individual. How is it able that we as people should continue to have the excitement and the energy and to be excited on day 50 as on day 1, as in year 50 as in year 1. What gives the person the momentum, the ability to have to continue that excitement? As human beings, we know that as time goes on, things become dry and stale, and they're not as exciting anymore. They used to say, if you want to notice if people are married or not, look in the park, you see a couple talking to each other with excitement, they're probably not married to each other. You see a couple on a bench talking, not talking to each other, they're probably married to each other. Why? Because after a while, people lose their momentum, their excitement in their relationship, and all of a sudden they don't see it, and they don't get excited about it anymore. How do we keep the flame alive? How do we keep that excitement, the passion between the couple that it should stay there forever? And that is, you know, sometimes they want to say, well, seniority, you're there for a long time, is a guarantee, you have assurance, you know each other very well. But is there an excitement? Is there a passion? You know, everything in life that you have once or twice, you're excited about it. But then you start doing it more often, it becomes part of your routine. You start losing your excitement, your momentum. Think about the first time you tasted a certain type of food. The first time you had pizza, you said, wow, beautiful, tasty. I never ever had it before. It's amazing. But talk to the guy in the pizza shop who eats it for breakfast, lunch, and supper. He can't look at it anymore. Why is it? Because when we have something for once, it's exciting. The more often we have it, like bread becomes stale, not exciting, and it uh, dries out after a while. It is because at the end of the day, the same ideas... The pizza hasn't changed. What changed? You, the human being, has changed. They say a story about an individual. There was a story that they give this example. They once did this study. In January of 2007, 
a guy walked into the train station in Washington, D.C. What's the very famous train station? I think it's Lafayette Station or something like that. And this guy comes with a big violin and he starts playing. Nobody's listening to him. Nobody's standing next to the garbage over there playing violin. You're like you go on the subway in Manhattan, the same thing. And the guy puts out his thing. And a few people, at the end of the day, he got $35 that people dropped him from walking by that listened to him play the violin. And a few people out of Rachmanis, you know, they had some mercy on the guy and some pity. And they dropped some dollars in. But what happened was, people didn't realize that who this guy that was playing the violin happened to be a good old Jew by the name of Joshua Bell. And those that know about Joshua Bell, he's considered one of the very famous violinists. And he was, who used to take thousands of dollars for a concert. His old violin was a violin from the 1713s, which was worth about $3.5 billion, million dollars. His repertoire that he played was this beautiful Mozart that everybody would have enjoyed. But what happened? How come nobody listened to it? That same guy would have been playing in a concert hall and you would know who he is. You would pay $250 to sit in the, just in the balcony and you would sit there and go, wow, amazing. What's the difference? The music is the same. It's the knowledge. It's the realization. It's the mode that you're in. The presence of mind. The excitement about it. He can either be the same guy that looks like a pauper playing in the train station, playing on the, on the galleria in the fancy, uh, what's it called, in the fancy uh, opera center, all of a sudden, you're willing to pay thousands of dollars for over here, you won't look at him. It's the same music, same violin, same violinist. The difference is the way we think of it. The Baal Shem Tov used to say, a pleasure which is constant is, becomes stale, it becomes nature, and therefore is no longer a pleasure. Think about it. The things that we take for granted about today, years ago, was a luxury. And all of a sudden, those luxuries became normal. All of a sudden, we take it for granted, like air conditioning. It used to be air conditioning was considered a luxury. Today, you can't live without it. Why? Because it became natural to it. It became part of us. And the same ideas when the other person is on whatever scale they may be on, things that we become accustomed to eventually lose their momentum, lose their excitement, lose their pleasure, lose their enjoyment. The same ideas also we find in the Torah. I'll give you a little example. It says when Aaron died, Moses' brother, the Jewish people couldn't stop mourning his loss. When Moses died, 30 days, boom, it was over. They finished mourning his loss. Who's greater, Moses or Aaron? Aaron was just Moses' accomplice. But still in all Moses, they got over after 30 days. Aaron, they were still mourning. And the Talmud says a very interesting thing. Because Moses, for five weeks before his passing, was preparing the Jewish people and saying, I'm about to die. The Jewish people mentally were prepared for it. And automatically, when he died, they were, so to speak, immune to the concept that he died. Okay, he died, we mourn, we're sad, but we move on. But Aaron was a sudden passing. And therefore, it took them much longer to get over his passing. In Hebrew, they used to say, the greatest enemy of love is routine. When you get used to something, you all of a sudden don't like it. Imagine you have ice cream every single day. You get sick of it. You don't like it anymore. And the same idea also happens in relationships. 
in relationships we have a concept that you see a person every single day, day in, day out, you get used to it, and eventually that relationship gets stale and loses its momentum, loses its excitement. So the question is, how do you keep the flame alive? And the answer is, as we mentioned before, like that old man told us, is to every single day get married. Every single day create the passion. How does that work in Judaism? Judaism has an implemented system within its laws. In Judaism, we know there's a law called Tarat HaMishpacha, family purity. That every single time when a woman gets her menstrual period, she has to separate from her husband until she can immerse herself in the mikvah. Once she immerses herself in the mikvah, then she can come back together with her husband. So every single two weeks, she's renewing the flame. She's recapturing. As they say, what's the greatest way to abstinence makes the heart grow fonder? The very fact that they're not together, so then when they are together, there's a greater excitement and a greater passion. But even more so, is to find in everything we do and to create in every mitzvah we do the chodesh, the renewal, to make it new, to make it exciting. And how do we do that? Is by always increasing in our relationship with God. Just because yesterday I did this, today I have to do a little more. The concept that we find that it says the very obligation that we talk about also in this week's Torah reading, that a person has an obligation to make his wife happy, so to speak. The Talmud tells us, or in the Torah says, that a, a male guy that was drafted to the war, the only person that was exempt from going to war, was a person who newly got married, because he has an obligation to rejoice with his wife. What does it mean to rejoice with his wife? So one may say, rejoice with your wife, that you have to do it together. That whatever she likes, you like, and whatever you like, she has to like. But King Solomon says something very interesting. King Solomon seemingly says two counterintuitive, two opposite statements. On one statement he says, Matza isha matza tov, I found a woman I found good. And then in another statement in Proverbs he says, what I found for myself, mar, me mother's more bitter than death, was the wife. Which one is it? Is the wife something which is as bad as death, or is the wife something which is the greatest thing? And the commentary says, look at the words of King Solomon. King Solomon is very specific in his words. Matzah, if you found a woman, that means if you're looking out for the woman, and your interest is to be able to make the relationship great, then you found good. But if ani, but if all you're looking for is, wow, does this relationship make me happy? Then yes, you're going to have a bitter ending. All the wife is going to be is something worse than death. You know, what is a relationship? What the Torah is telling us is that what is a relationship is? A relationship is that we're invested in the relationship. It's not about what I get from the relationship. It's what I give the relationship. It's not what we are going to get from each other. It's what we give to one another is that creates the relationship. And therefore, if we look at the difference again at the word Chodesh, which is written in the Ketubah, while Yerach, which is written in the divorce document, Chodesh just, does, just, just doesn't mean month, but Chodesh means noon. You want to be able to have a document of marriage. A document of marriage tells you from day one, every single day this has to be noon. This is not the same old stale relationship that you had years ago. This is not the stale relationship you had a week ago. It's not just 
What's a Yerach Hamun? Just going in circles and doing the same routine again and again and again. What happens if you do the same routine again and again? It becomes stale, dry, exhausting. But if every single time it's Chodesh, there's something new, there's something exciting about it. If every single day you look like you just got married, then you have a renewed energy, there's a passion, there's an excitement. While this is all well and good, this is especially, this is said so between man and woman, between two people. How much more so this applies in our relationship with God. Let's take the same paradigm and apply it to our example between man and God. And between man and God, we know that if a person can do everything that it says in Jewish law, you can follow the word to letter to the law, but still have dry, not exciting, non-passionate Judaism. How do we create a passion in our relationship with the Almighty? How do we make that when we daven, we should be excited, when we learn, we should be excited, when whatever we do should have that excitement and that passion? Not a dry relationship, because what happens if you have that dry relationship, it becomes stale. And today you start doing less and less and less because the relationship becomes stale until you become separated from one another. Therefore, a Jew, when he does something, and when we do a mitzvah, we shouldn't do a mitzvah as if, you know, oh, I wake up in the morning, I have to daven. I want to daven. I want to have a relationship. There should be a pleasure in what we do. That gives us the energy to do it. A Jew has to be able to serve God and realize that every single day, as we say in our prayers, that God renews the world every single moment, so too our relationship with God is renewed every single moment. Every single one of us has that ability to do it. As the Baal Shem Tov says, in the words pertaining to Rosh Hashanah, Tiku Bachodesh Shofar. Blow the sound of the shofar in the month shofar. Technically in Hebrew, if you read Hebrew correctly, you should say Tiku Shofar Bachodesh. Blow the shofar on the first day of the month. Why does it say Bachodesh blow the month in the shofar? And the Baal Shem Tov explains that what's the sound of the shofar? It's not the sound that comes out of the shofar. That's what makes the difference. That's what the mitzvah is. It's the sound within yourself, your relationship that you have with God. It's your inspiration that you say, yes, I want to have a relationship. The renewed intensification of your relationship with God. Tiku, blow, bachodesh, that renewed intensification, bachofer. It is expressed through the shofar. Your renewed dedication to God, every single Rosh Hashanah, every single day, is expressed through the Rosh, is, is expressed through the shofar. How is this done? Every single time, by adding and increasing. Imagine, take, let's go back to the relationship between man and wife. Imagine a person wants to connect with his wife even more passionately, even more excitedly, and renew that relationship. What do they do? They continue to share with each other more, continue to give each other more. Even though yesterday, yes, I did what I did yesterday, that will work for yesterday. But today I want to show more of a dedication. So too in our relationship with God, every single time we have an opportunity that we can dedicate more of ourselves to God, whether spiritually, emotionally, physically, materially, we always have to do that. The Rebbe always looked to every single year, the Rebbe would say that he himself, you can think was on the pinnacle of holiness, would always look to see what he can do extra in his serving of God. There's a story told that there was a bakery, there's a matzah bakery, still today in Kfar Chabad, in Israel. 
And the Rebbe, every single year when they started baking matzahs, would send, as his participation, so to speak, that they should make a lachayim for the starting of the baking of the matzahs, would send a bottle of mashka. One year, the Rebbe didn't send one. So the manager of the bakery was a little disappointed, you know, with this, where's the blessings that he's going to have this year? So he wrote a letter to the Rebbe asking the Rebbe, bemoaning the fact, how come this, week, this year he didn't get the bottle of mashka, bottle of vodka? The Rebbe responded to him that every single year he takes upon himself an extra observance or stringency in Jewish law. And this year in Rosh Hashanah, he took upon himself an extra stringency of the laws of chametz, which is leaven bread. And being that vodka is leaven, he didn't want to have any association with the matzah bakery. And that was his extra stringency. And that's why the Rebbe didn't send it to him. The same ideas also we find in Jewish law, that there are many different people, Hasidim, especially in Hasidism and the Kabbalists, they always looked that they were, they didn't suffice with just observing the law in the mediocre way. They always wanted to go beyond the letter of the law. Why did they go beyond the letter of the law? Because the same way that we treat God in our relationship beyond the letter of the law, so too God also reciprocates in kind with us beyond the letter of the law. But even more so. When we create an aura of a relationship that it's not because I have to, then the relationship is also expanded exponentially from every angle and every avenue. Not only from our side, but also God reciprocates in kind exponentially as well. Just conclude with the following story, a great story. I think I said it once before, but it's a good story anyway. There was a fellow, he lived in Svat. His name was Rabbi Gimple Ermland. I'm sorry, he lived in Miami, then later on in Svat. He lived in Miami, he owned a nursing home. And uh, he became very friendly with Chabad Hasidim. He wasn't Chabad particular himself. And one year he came to the Rebbe for Simchas Torah. And the custom was by Simchas Torah, um, there was, uh, the, the custom was by Simchas Torah, they would announce, they would sell like the different verses for the Hakafas, for the different dedications that were then. And each person would bid how much they're giving money towards it. And this skimple was standing over there, and here's the people are giving. This guy gives a thousand dollars. This guy gives a two thousand dollars, and then he hears one guy giving a thousand dollars. All of a sudden, this was something out of the usual that the Rebbe pointed at him, and the Rebbe said, "You five thousand dollars." Standing there, the Rebbe said, five thousand dollars." He's a little flustered. He didn't necessarily have the money at the time, and the Rebbe looks at him and says, "You give five thousand dollars. I guarantee you, next year you'll be able to give three times the amount." You'll make back three times the amount. With such a promise, who can go wrong, right? He gives pledges to $5,000 and he's waiting. Again, he wasn't such a chassid at the time. And he's waiting for the promise to come through. It's one, one month passes, two months. Finally, it comes the end of the year, right before Rosh Hashanah. And there was a hospital right next to him who offered to all of a sudden buy his nursing home from him. And the amount of profit that he made on the deal was exactly $15,000. So he realized that this works. So he says, this year I'm going, I'm bidding even bigger. So he comes at Simchas Torah. One guy bought the first verse for $5,000. Now it's his turn. And they ask him, how much are you bidding? So he said, whatever the Rebbe says. Because he, you know, he wants to come back making good earnings. Okay. After Simchas Torah, he comes into the Rebbe for a private audience. But then it was the custom that all the guests would come afterwards for a private audience. And he asks the Rebbe, how much does the Rebbe want me to give? So the Rebbe says, $126. He looks at the Rebbe in amazement. He says, last year you wanted 5000 I was expecting big returns. So the Rebbe looks at him and says, you think I need your money? 
I just wanted you should go out of your bounds so God should go out of his bounds for you. We sometimes need that extra stretch to make it across the finish line. And we get tired as it gets to the finish line. We get exhausted. And especially in a relationship, say, I don't have any more strength. You know, I've been doing this for 20, 25 years. I can't go on. We need to get that momentum to be able to make it across the finish line. So what does God tell us? Right by Elul, the month of Elul, we're coming at the finish line right before Rosh Hashanah. Chodesh, renew yourself. The month of Elul is here. Let's renew ourselves. Let's rededicate ourselves. Let's reinvigorate ourselves by making a resolution and saying our commitment to God is going to be beyond the letter of the law. So too, our relationship with God is beyond the letter of the law. That's what the Torah is reminding us the difference between a stale relationship and a renewed relationship. Our relationship with God has to be a constant one of renewal. Always looking to see how I can make it better. No matter what a life. It doesn't have to be something extreme. But every little baby step of renewal creates an automatic momentum in the relationship that gets us so excited that helps us in everything and every facet of life.